they have to think of themselves as talent development specialists. And sadly, turnover is affecting just about every subsector within the nonprofit community. So if you're going to be an effective in your role, and in addition to everything you have to do on your job description, I think you have to be really thoughtful about being a year-round talent development specialist. What are you doing to attract and then retain the next generations of talent? They're out there. But I think if you just kind of wait until a vacancy occurs and then scramble, which sadly many of us have had to do, um, you miss out. And so what can you do? Like you said earlier, Carol, can we create an internship program? Maybe as an executive director, do you agree to speak to the college class in your community, knowing that you getting out there as an ambassador for your nonprofit might get someone from that classroom to think about, you know what, I'd like to work for them someday. My guest today on Mission Impact is Patton McDowell. Patton and I talk about the three stages of nonprofit leadership, from emerging leaders, mid-career choices, and executive leadership. We discuss the challenges inherent in each stage of your career, how new nonprofit employees are often entering the sector with a lot more specific education about the sector than earlier generations, and the importance of building a supportive group of peers as a sounding board. I appreciated Patton's point about leaders at all levels needing to think of themselves as talent developers year-round. This is not just about when you have an opening. How are you providing opportunities for staff to learn new things and grow and develop? This doesn't always mean sending someone to a course. This could be as simple as starting your staff meeting once a month with a presentation from a team member on a book, a podcast, a webinar, or an article they read with them sharing its highlights and what they learned from it, and then the team discussing it. This contributes to the team's learning in a variety of ways. They're regularly exposed to new things and then have a chance to reflect on the implications and how they might apply it to their work. It also challenges the staff person to present to a group and facilitate a conversation, both leadership skills. And another not training professional development option that we explored was the organizational exchange or site visit. Finding someone who has a similar job at another organization and then working with them to organize an exchange, for example, one day or a week, you could go to their organization and chat with them. And then the next time they come to you and do the same thing. Patton described taking this one step further and having his whole team go out to different institutions and then come back and report on what they observed. This type of cross-fertilization and benchmarking gets you out of the, this is how we've always done it, to see how others are doing things. And it provides you with the opportunity to take what's useful for your context and apply it, and then also be buoyed if you're actually in better shape than the other institution that you visit. Another key point that we explored is looking at your turnover and thinking about what is predictable and how can you actually prepare for it. Are you accounting for the time it takes to hire and onboard new staff? Or are you acting like this is an add-on to your manager's roles and that this is something that is an aberration when it happens? And then how do you handle the work left behind when someone leaves? If you never account for those gaps and dial back, and instead just expect the rest of the staff to step in and add even more to their already overflowing plates, this is really just not sustainable over time and is a recipe for burnout. And yet in my experience working inside organizations, this definitely seemed like the norm. 
Charlie Gilkey, an organizational consultant and coach, recommends planning your work around 85% capacity to account for those inevitable gaps. And yet, in our give 110% culture, this may seem like heresy. But then we wonder why turnover is so high right now and why so many people are talking about burnout in the nonprofit sector. What is one shift that you might make in your organization to be more realistic about the ebbs and flows of your team and your team's workload? Mission Impact is the podcast for nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategy consultant. Mission Impact is brought to you by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Gray Social Sector Consulting brings you whole brain strategy consulting for nonprofits and associations. We help you move your mission forward, engage all voices, and have fun while doing it. We combine left brain strategy and analysis with right brain wisdom about human complexities for a proven whole brain, whole organization process through which every stakeholder thrives. Reach out to us for support and facilitation of strategic planning, mapping your social impact, as well as auditing your services for mission alignment. We especially love working with staffed nonprofits and associations with human-centered missions. Well, welcome, Patton. Welcome to Mission Impact. Thank you, Carol. Delighted to be here. So I'd like to start out with a question around what drew you to the work that you do? What would you say motivates you and what would you describe kind of as your why? I was fortunate. Um, like many of our colleagues, I came in, I guess, through a side door to the philanthropic sector. I was a college intern at Special Olympics International in Washington, D.C., and what I thought might just be a fun summer, uh, and then moving to whatever else my future might have held forward, uh, became an eye-opening experience. I was able to work at Special Olympics when Eunice Kennedy Shriver, the founder mm -hmm was still actively involved. And it was fascinating and inspiring. And I saw not just the power of that organization, the power of her vision, but also the potential of a career in the sector. And so I indeed stayed and worked for Special Olympics, both at the international office, as well as the North Carolina state office. Okay. Um, and, and so that kind of launched me into a career. I then subsequently worked in higher education as a fundraiser for about 10 years. And so anyway, uh, I have to give credit to Special Olympics and Eunice Kennedy Shriver as the origin of my kind of career path. Well, I often talk about how um, my brother, who is uh, developmentally disabled and autistic and deaf, um, is certainly probably part of my origin story of yes, uh, to yes. move into the sector. But I'm wondering also now as you talk that whether he was participating in Special Olympics in the greater D.C. area, just about right. where it might have been, we might have been over overlapping, but he never really... Uh, he, he, Whatever his his uh, combination of um, of I don't know I don't want to call them issues or challenges or whatever it is the truth is he doesn't care about competition or right, it, right. It, it never made any sense to him and so um, it wasn't something that that really was was a great fit for him but it is for so many people Indeed. who um, you know just uh, really enjoy it so uh, with that launching into the sector you you now help people at really all stages of their leadership journey and career journey in the nonprofit sector from you know emerging leaders to those kind of 
more at the mid-level or mid-career and then those in leadership positions. And um, I kind of like to talk to you about some of the common challenges at those stages and and then really, you know, what folks can do to kind of address them. And, and it's interesting because we're really in a point where, you know, we have four generations um, in the workforce uh, right. and, you know, it's been a minute since I started out. So um, thinking about those emerging leaders, I know I know things have changed a lot, but what are you seeing with kind of that emerging group and, of leaders in terms of kind of Gen Z, millennials, um, and the challenges that they're facing with kind of developing or stepping into their leadership capacity? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right, perhaps in generations past that you and I represent, um, number one, the biggest issue is opportunity. Uh, because so many uh, of that generation, the emerging leader generation, are are deciding to go into philanthropic studies, nonprofit leadership, nonprofit management. And just about every university you and I could think of has or is going to have both undergraduate and graduate level programming in this field, which is exciting. So as nonprofit leaders, there is a talent wave that is coming at us. But the challenge is, I guess, two ways. Uh, one, um, nonprofit leaders have to adapt to this new generation who are coming in generally well-educated, uh, well-oriented to the uh, opportunities and challenges. Um, so what are you as a nonprofit leader doing to attract and retain this new generation of talent? But then the emerging leader, as you suggest, I think often it's the practical skills uh, in terms of some of the coaching and training programs I'm doing. They're getting the, you know, the classwork the 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 textbook information, but they need practical skills in in terms of one how to get a job, uh, you know, literally some of those job um, recruitment tactics uh, that they are trying to navigate, and then um, real practical experience. Um, in other words, I, I hear over and over, Carol, the kind of the you know. I can't even get in the door because of, you know, if they say you have to have three years of experience, even for entry level, then how are they supposed to get experience if they can't even get in the door? Uh, so that to me would be kind of the fundamental challenge. And, but I have some ideas, but I'll pause there. Yeah. Cause it's interesting thinking about, you know, like, as you described, you started as an intern and, and when I moved into the sector, um, you know, there there weren't all of those programs that were teaching nonprofit management. They, you know, they started developing maybe maybe five to 10 years into my career. Um, but now you have people who, you know, they may have studied that at the undergraduate level. They may have gone on for graduate work. And so there's also a, a, a when you've done that amount of um, preparation, there can be a bit of a mismatch between kind of the organizational expectations of you're going to start at the ground versus someone coming in with a master's degree wanting to start a little further ahead. Exactly. And so how do you kind of bring those two together? Yeah, I, my encouragement to nonprofit leaders is be careful that your job descriptions, your job postings don't create artificial barriers. So in other words, like the one you and I just mentioned, if if you require, and I know you need to, in some cases, require a certain amount of experience, but you might want to have a little more flexibility there because you're right, a graduate student might have practical experience and might be fully capable of doing the job, uh, but you'd hate to not even have them interview because they simply were kind of ruled out because of a three years of experience. 
Um, give them a chance, give them an interview and see what happens. Yeah. And I'm seeing that across a, in a lot of different, from a lot of different points of view of, um, you know, organizations taking another look at those kind of assumptions built into job descriptions around, so true. you know, does the, does the job actually require a bachelor's degree or, you know, and right. this is a graduate degree. Does it really, really require that? Or are there other pathways for people to, you know, start? And then if you're offering internships, are you, you know, are you offering it in a way that, um, you know, many people can participate versus folks who, you know, have their own resources to support themselves if you're asking people to do a free internship? Good point. And I, of course, I, I realize there's a cost involved, but I just think it's one of the greatest investments I have seen organizations make. And it, it helps bridge the gap you and I are discussing. In other words, if you can get a, a graduate student intern and they prove themselves, then you may uh, acquire some talent. You know, they get oriented to your organization. Um, I do think, you know, it's hard, particularly if you, we're trying to diversify our staff and give opportunities to individuals who may not have the means to, uh, to accept a free internship. They got to work. Right. Uh, right and exactly. so, um, but I, I have seen wonderful examples. You know, they're, they understand they're not going to make big money, Sure. but you can pay them a little bit and you will get, I think an even greater return. And, and I've seen it even in my small consulting practice that I have tried to maintain two graduate student interns for the last five years and have just seen wonderful examples of their work and, uh, again, hopefully I'm giving them that experience that maybe will help them, you know, bridge a gap when an application says you have to have some experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think yeah, for organizations to think about different ways that they can offer people a pathway in. And I think there's a whole different set of expectations. There's how do I get a job? But and then, you know, a, a different set of experience coming into the sector in terms of education, probably, you know, knowing a lot of from a theory, theoretical point of view, but then how do you really get those, those practical skills? But I think there's also a big disconnect um, in terms of uh, just expectations at the different generational levels of, yeah. you know, what does it mean to to be an employee? What does it mean to, you know, show up at work? All those kinds of things. So what are some of the things that kind of the rubs that you're seeing uh, with the folks that you're working with? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think the the hybrid work environment is challenging in many levels. You've got maybe more traditional senior members of organizations that, you know, they're used to going in the office and having set hours and this younger generation. And I, I'm, I'm hesitant right. to generalize because, you know, I'm in an older generation. Yeah, I too. like the flexibility <laughs> of a hybrid work schedule, right? So we, we better be careful to classify everybody. But I, I've seen some of that tug of war between the senior uh, administrator wanting to have that kind of structure, wanting to have everybody back in the office. And I think that is a challenge. And let's face it, you know, that that 20 something generation that grew up in a pandemic, they grew up in a virtual environment, they're used to it. And, and in fact, many of them are going to kind of expect it. And so you've got to decide as a senior leader, can you provide flexibility? I think, you know, again, I'm of a mindset as many of I think our colleagues are, Carol, that, you yeah. know, get the job done. Um, and it, if if you have to leave early or you come, you know, your schedule is somewhat flexible. I think that's what that generation is going to look for. So if if you have to kind of maintain 
strict office hours and strict routines, that's up to you. But I think you will lose out on. Talent. Yeah, it becomes that it becomes a barrier in the other direction of not not being exactly. A, um, uh, an organization that that is really attractive to you know to to new talent um and exactly right. you know there's some circumstances depending on the type of work that if if there's you know direct service that it may need to be in person but even now a lot of that has moved Indeed. um virtually as well and and I think the other thing that people, organizations, or there's been a lot of talk about with the shift to hybrid and or remote um, is uh, an inability to be collaborative, which I don't agree with, because if it's well facilitated, that's an know, argument. It, right. it will happen. Right. It's just the poorly facilitated collaboration that was happening in person is even worse online. And it's mostly, I, from my point of view, that because people don't have the skills to either facilitate it in person, actually, or, um, you know, really know how to create conversations and create the environment to have that collaborative uh, conversations um, online. And so it's really more a matter of skills versus, you know, we can't have culture if we're remote. Well, you have culture regardless. <laughs> exactly. Whether you call it that or not. And but you raise a good point, too, in that I think organizations have a right to be intentional about, you know, e etiquette in the sure. virtual meeting room. And and again, uh, and I've got children that are in this generation, recent college graduates who, you know, they're used to their college virtual experience was, yeah, you had a hat on and you just kind of, you can, you don't have to turn your screen on. You're not well lit. You're just there to listen. Uh, and so sometimes I think it's worth talking about the virtual etiquette so that you can maintain a culture that is as positive as it can be in a virtual yeah, setting. Yeah, I, I have definitely seen that as well, where you where you really do need, and like many things, to have an explicit conversation about what are we expecting, what are the expectations here. Yes. Um, you know, if we are working remotely uh, and we're, you know, but we are having an, a synchronous meeting, you know, what are the expectations for you showing up, um, you know, that it is a professional environment, uh, all of those exactly. things that you're not, you, you aren't. Assuming you're, you know, even if you've moved, even if you're doing an internship, you're you're now in a in a work environment, and so the expectations may be different, but not assuming that well those put. are shared and having a conversation about it. Correct. How about Correct. folks kind of at that mid-career level or kind of mid, you know, could be mid-career, could be kind of you know, middle, you know, the, the proverbial middle managers in organizations, what are you seeing in terms of those, uh, those folks in at that stage of their career? Yeah, I'm using the term Carol of late, uh, the mid career yeah. plateau where they, they, they like the work they've been in it, you know, eight, 10, 12 years, but they feel like they've hit a wall or hit a ceiling. Um, and, and so that to me is an important crossroad in their professional career. And, and so getting clarity around, all right, do you want to climb the ladder you're on? And you don't have to, but uh, do you see if I'm a director, do I want to be an executive director? And so what I'm trying to do when I'm working coaching or we have a mastermind group, it includes a good percentage or probably what I'd call this mid-career plateau. I want to be an executive director, find me a path. And so to me, we break down kind of the vision elements of, all right, well, do you want to stay in the sector you're in? 
If you're in education, do you want to stay there? Would you consider healthcare? Would you consider human services, arts and culture, environment? And often what I'm trying to do is encourage someone who's just in that, you know, I, I, I think I want to stay here, but I just don't know. And I realize, you know, it's easy as an outsider to just say, well, come on, snap out of it. No, if you're kind of locked into a, a silo and you're getting worn out, then maybe it's good to step back and think about some of the questions like, uh, would you move? You know, what I'm trying to do is get them out of just being miserable. And so let's talk about, is it the organization? All right. Well, do you want to stay in the sector? Would you stay in this community? Would you move for the right opportunity? Um, What exactly does leadership look like for you? And maybe breaking it down into some of those component parts. And then let's come up with a plan to help you get there. In other words, do an assessment of your skills that that maybe right now you lack to move to the executive level. Carol, for a lot of our folks that we work with, it's the financial acumen that I would say uh, is a hindrance. Not all, but many of our nonprofit friends come in sure. from the program side, marketing, development, great skills. You need them. But ultimately, I think if you're going to be hired in the executive level, you're going to need you know the be able to manage a board. You're going to need to manage a budget, the P&L that, you know, the business of nonprofit requires. And so that's what I'm kind of seeing is the the plateau maybe is some of these kind of hard and soft skills. And then we just need to come up with a plan to help you break. Yeah, and through. I would think the other one that I've heard is the, the um, kind of fundraising, being able to fundraise. Great. If you yeah, didn't come through yeah. that. And so that can be. Right challenging for a program person. And I think inside an organization, it can be particularly challenging because somebody, especially if they've been in a role for a long time, can become so identified with it that folks can't even see their, their potential for, you know, um, you know, continuing if that's what they want to do. And, and for other folks, I'm sure that they may hit a wall, but it may be, you know, is being an executive director the only option or is there some way that I can go deeper with what I do? And maybe it's changing to a different organization so that there are new challenges or, or something, but it's not always, I think the, the typical answer has been, you know, move up to the next level, but that isn't for everybody. Such a good point. And you're right. And that can be a source of that kind of frustration. I, that I don't know that I want to move up but I guess it's my only option. So you're right. That's when I think you have to look sideways sometimes. Right. Lateral move. Maybe it's a larger organization where your role would have increasing responsibility and that would be a, a positive right. move. But again, you raise a good point that I, and I found it in my own personal career, you know, it's easy to get kind of focused on the ladder that you're on is the only ladder when in fact there are multiple ladders maybe yeah. right around yeah. you. And for me, I mean, it was, it's been interesting that, um, as I continued in my career, I just realized that I became more and more interested in the how of people, how they work <laughs> versus what they were particularly working on. You know, that's so that's what led me to organization development and and then ultimately to, to strategy work is like, how do we get it all done? How do we work together? How do we set priorities? Um, and, and, you know, Exactly what those are is up to the to the folks I'm working with, but that's what I realized that I really enjoyed and can be my contribution, you know, to the sector. So yes. a little bit of a lateral move in a way. Um, 
And even if I were to have stayed in organizations, I think probably I would have been focused on something like a chief of staff role where it's more internally focused. So again, like how how right. how is everything working inside the organization versus that real external facing kind of role with the executive director? But you exactly. play to your strengths, right? You play to what brings you joy. And that's so good because I think a lot of people, as you say, get frustrated because they assume there's a singular path. And in fact, there may be multiple ones to consider. Yeah, and I think, you know, the that that one path has been, you know, traditionally what's what's offered to folks as the way to succeed. And I think what we're learning more right. and more is that no, it needs to, it needs to exactly what you're talking about, play to your strengths, play to what really, you know, lights you up. And and then that's gonna be very individualistic. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So how about for those folks who are either have are about to be stepping into that executive role or or are in it? What um what are some of the things that you're coaching them around? The the mm. it's a lonely world when you get to that senior role. And I hear this in in multiple ways, but it, there's an isolation that sometimes is a surprise. You've been working so hard, but now all of a sudden you're the boss and maybe you were a peer of other colleagues on this organization, or if you're new, again, you are the singular leader and, and you can't necessarily go sure. to your staff about some of your challenges, nor can right. you go to your board. So you're stuck in the middle and sometimes struggling with the turnover issues that face so many nonprofit leaders now on the staff side and the disengagement sometimes mm -hmm. of your board, either micromanaging you or disengage, neither of which is good. And so there's a lot of personal counsel, and I think peer support becomes critical. Um, and so finding a peer group, because when when you were one of five directors, yep. you had yep. a peer group, right, at an organization. Now that you're the executive director, that peer group is not going to be there right. in your office. It's going to be you know, a comparable executive director. And I would suggest always finding aspirational mm -hmm. right. peers, too someone who's 10 years ahead of you, you know, in the role, uh, perhaps, or someone you admire doing work like yours. Um, but the the other thing I've seen, Carol, a lot of is the challenges of just managing the yeah. volume. There's a real intensity now that you're in charge. And when perhaps you're a step or two below, a lot of your structure is built in, provided. You're, you're going to the meetings you have to go to, but now you're the one setting the agenda, literally setting the calendar. And, and so a lot of the conversations I have is I ask the question, all right, how do you manage the volume of, of information coming at you? There, there, I think is a lot of personal productivity um, because your answer can't be just stay right. up later, right? Which is what many of us do. And, and that's just it's not, not sustainable. sustainable. And so, right. So you've got to have Systems and I in. think, you know, differentiating what you really, really need to be part of. What of that volume need, do you need to weigh in on? And, and to what extent, so true. you know, can you empower? And then that and that empowerment of folks that you're delegating to, you need to have that trust. And so how do you build that trust? Especially when you grew up 
and again, so many of the very talented nonprofit leaders we see, they're used right. to rolling up their sleeves, right? They've right. always and done it's that. a value. Or they That's have a just value. stayed up. The, the, exactly. You know, uh, exactly. I, I'm not I'm not worried about getting my hands dirty. I can go scrub those pots or, you know, pick up that trash behind the building, whatever it might be. And yes, great, you can do it. And you know, is that the is that the it best use of your time? But and it's hard exactly because I, I think sometimes about, you kind of want to do right. that to show, um, I don't know, demonstrate that value. On the other hand, if you get yes. caught up in all of that all the time, there's no one really it may not be fo your... focusing on the on the strategy. And I mean, you talked about it being lonely, and I, I certainly um, think it's so valuable to have those peer groups where you're able to talk to other executive directors, you know, maybe of the kind of similar size organization, maybe a little bit bigger, as as you said, kind of at the same you know, stage, new, or, you know, also connecting with people who've been in it for a little bit longer. Um, but I'm also right. seeing a lot, uh, maybe not a lot, but it's, it's getting a lot of conversation around um, folks experimenting with different ways to set up that executive director, that it isn't always a singular person. What are you seeing in terms yep. of that? I, in fact, uh, on, on our podcast, I've interviewed a couple okay. of pairs, co-executive directors, um, I, I think it's still challenging. I mean, I, I think if you have a unique set of blended personalities that can work. Um, but I, I still have some questions about the, the challenges that might bring as to who exactly is in charge. I mean, you, in some case, I guess you, you divide the labor over two people, but ultimately they have to come together and, you know, agree to make final decisions like the budget. Right. And both sides need their finances. But um, so I, I, I've seen some of that. I guess I'm still waiting to see if that can work for the long haul. Uh, but maybe, again, I'm too rooted <laughs> in the traditional. You have to have one person ultimately where the buck stops. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, just on the surface, it seems like, well, more hands, less work. But there's also yep. the more people you have involved, the more um, coordination and consultation that you need to do. So it, it it's not a one-to-one. -one. Right. Um, and so I think, yeah, uh, as organizations are kind of thinking about that, to have more of a shared leadership um, philosophy or approach, they really have to think through, yes, who's doing what? Who's responsible for what? Who gets to make what decisions? What decisions do we have to do together? You know, all of those things in it. And it becomes even more important to be really clear about those things. I think from what I've observed, um, you know, that's where people get caught up a, a lot, where they they haven't gotten real clear, uh, even when it's just one person. Um, yep, yep, exactly right. So what are some other things that you're seeing um, with those folks? You talked about turnover is a big issue right now. Are there other big challenges that you're seeing uh, executive directors um, having to tackle? Yeah, I, I think, and, and you've touched on it several times, but I, I think they they have to think of themselves as, as talent development mm. specialists. Um, you know, and sadly, turnover is affecting just about every subsector within the nonprofit community. So if you're going to be an effective in your role, and in addition to everything you have to do on your job description, I think you have to be really thoughtful about being a year round talent development specialist. What are you doing to attract and then retain, you know, the, the 
next generations of of talent. They're out there, but I think if if you just kind of wait until a vacancy occurs and then scramble, which sadly many of us have had to do, um, you miss out. And so what can you do? Like you said earlier, Carol, can we create an internship program? Can we maybe as an executive director, do you agree to speak to the college class mm -hmm. in your community, knowing that you getting out there as an ambassador for your nonprofit might get someone from that classroom to think about, you know what, I'd like to work for them someday. Um, again, it's it's those things that maybe that doesn't have a near term, you know, benefit, but I think you have to begin to think like that longer term so that, you know, your organization is protected from the talent drain that is. Yeah, occurring. that's a great point. And I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that feels like an add on sometimes where it really needs to be central, where I, I know I when I That's was, you know, exactly. kind of in that middle management tier, um, one of the things that from my job description was like a little of the oh and other duties as assigned, but actually was, you know, I don't know, a good percentage of my uh, of the time I actually spent was always being in um, a hiring process because we had a, a number of entry level roles in my department and you know and and we always wanted to um hire smart people and so they were in those roles for you know maybe 18 months and then they would go on to graduate school or they would go into the peace corps yep. or they yep. would you know go into the field that we were serving so um we were we were always uh, you know, probably six months away from our next search that we were going to be in. And, you know, it's but, it, reality, but isn't it? yeah. somehow the way the job was framed, that was an extra where it wasn't at all. It was so central to what I was doing. So well put. And it, again, I like the way you said it, that it needs to be kind of a year round focus and not just a scramble when we have yeah. a vacancy. Um, what are we doing to attract talent? Are we lifting up our younger professionals in our social right. media to demonstrate to everybody else this is a good place to work? Uh, are we providing the, uh, an effective onboarding or, and orientation process? I think generally the sector does a poor job. And, and I, I, I'm not picking on people because if you're overwhelmed with your current job, hard to spend right. time with a new person. But I think it's not totally surprising that the turnover exists because we bring them in, we parachute and, and them in, we throw a three right, ring binder at them. Just jump, them jump in the deep end uh, with no, you know, no life preserver. No, exactly right. <laughs> Maybe that three ring, they no, three no ring binder they... that feels like a, like an anchor, not a, <laughs> not a, not a, it's, it's yeah. not a surprise that we lose some of our folks. So as the executive leader, I think you have to be very intentional about, yeah, what is the, the the processes that assure talent gets here and stays here and see that as legitimately part of your job? Yeah, and I almost wanted to, um, we, we uh, you know, we're a larger organization relatively, uh, I think it was probably 85 staff at that point. And, you know, in every department had um, entry level folks. And, you know, I almost wanted us to say, what's the next level of an internship program where we would basically have like an, an entry level, like fellowship program where they would have a rotation, yes. they would rotate through, let's say three different departments and, you know, six months each department or something. And then we would know, we would always know we were recruiting for the next class instead of it being a quote unquote scramble. 
which was totally predictable. But point. that didn't happen. But if somebody wants to use that model, please have, take it. <laughs> You'd be open to it. Well, you know, I, I think, too, there, there's a similar track for the executive leader around mm. board, the board. And and so often we right. inherit the board, you know, that we arrive in and work with. But I, I think immediately you want to think yeah. about board development and maximizing the people that you have, but quickly building a pipeline of community talent that can serve on your board. And again, I think the mistake I've seen sometimes is, and I get it, you're busy with everything you have to do in the office and internally, but if you don't spend some time on board development, that quickly comes to back to bite you. And then you're really struggling politically and yeah. leadership wise, if you yeah. haven't put some time in it. What are some of those um, benefits that you see of that uh, coaching or leadership development or peer support at each of those levels. Yeah, I well, I, I just think one, there's a peace of mind. There, there's an emotional support structure that shouldn't be underestimated. When you feel like you're all alone and you're, you know, banging your head against the wall, it's always good. I suggest you find two people that are in in your job somewhere else and two people that are ahead of you on the path two comps, mm. two aspirationals, because I just think that creates a very positive support network that if you leave it, you know, just to your office, you may not get that. Uh, and so that, that kind of peer network is huge. And also think investing in your own professional development in a specific way, not just a vague, you know, I hope someday I can be mm -hmm. an executive director. And if I work hard, um, opportunities may come and, and that's true. They may come, but I think it's a more proactive and positive approach to think about, all right, if I want to be an executive director in five years, what literally are the skill sets that are being sought after? If you went and looked at a job board right now for an executive director role, which is one of the exercises I do, and you know, it doesn't mean you're going to apply for it now, but what does it tell you? And it's things like you said, Carol, what you're going to have to have the finance, the fundraising, you're going to see those skills. And now we can make a plan around that. That, which keeps you from dwelling on kind of the challenges right. of the day to, all right, maybe I can back up and see that in the long run, I'm going to be ready. And when that time and to comes. be ready to kind of advocate for yourself. And when a big project comes up, like, you know, let me, let me help out the executive director on that piece. Great point. Um, Cause I think because everyone is so, you know, rushed and overwhelmed and stretched, it's, it's easy to, again, like I said, see people, just the way they've always been or that role, just the way it's always been. And so not as easy to see what might be those stretch um, kind of assignments that could help someone build out a skill set that they don't have um, that, uh, you know, would also benefit the organization. It's a great idea. And in fact, I, I was fortunate as a program guy in Special Olympics. Um, uh, my boss did not object to me trying to learn from our CFO. I knew the financial side was an area I needed to learn. And so I went to the committee meeting, the board finance committee, you know, I asked and nobody, everybody's like, yeah, sure. If you want to spend more time in the meetings. And I, I scheduled time with the CFO um, and just said, Hey, would you mind if I took you to lunch a couple of times and just, I have some specific questions. Help me understand mm -hmm. the report. Help me understand what to look for on the finance side. And similarly, I've seen uh, HR directors or other program folks 
that will, hey, can I come to the campaign meeting with the fundraising director? And so to your point, Carol, I think our colleagues might well let us in if we're willing and are proactive in terms of kind of cross-training, if you will, in our current yeah, organization. And I, I talked to one person who had a particularly interesting kind of professional development thing that they did. You know, I think we often think of, you know, programs, uh, trainings, workshops, coaching, um, but they actually did an yeah, exchange but... where they went, they um, went and to a site visit to an organization that was very similar to theirs, but in a different location and with a person who had a similar role. And then they did a swap. So they basically did kind of an organization exchange it was like that. wow that's such a great idea to be able to see well how do you do the things that we do and and each be able to kind of cross pollinate on on you know how they're approaching different challenges well you know i when i had a led a, a university teams one of the exercises i would do similar to what you just described i had everybody on the team identify a peer mm -hmm. and go visit them so obviously geographically it had to be reasonably close um but they, and then everyone had to come back to our next kind of team retreat and share what you learned. What were your takeaways? And and so it, it just, it, it opened up so many doors. Sometimes we learn, wow, that institution is doing some things we ought to try. Other times we learn, you know what, we're not as bad off as right. I thought we were. We're doing things better than we think. <laughs> my, my visit proved that uh, maybe we're not as uh, struggling in some areas as like I thought, but Again, it's to your point, get out of the office, you know, and, and learn. And to me, that just kind of moves everybody. And certainly forward. it's a lot easier with, you know, being able to hop on a Zoom call with somebody. But there is also that value of actually doing an a in-person site visit and just seeing, um, you know, being able to observe things that you wouldn't be able to observe just in the, you know, in the the square of the, the Zoom screen. But, yeah. People will accept that. You know, I, I doubt many of your peers, you know, whether it's virtual or in person, hey, can I come yeah. shadow you for a day? You know, and and that I think has just wonderful benefits. For and both from sides. an organizational point of view, I think that point of making sure that people loop it back, give like you, you know, if the organization yes. is supporting you in going to a conference or a, a workshop or doing an exchange or any of the things that we're talking about to do exactly what you had your team do of come back and, and give us a highlight summary, give us a, you know, what were your takeaways? What did you learn from this? I mean, it's like, it's multiple um, benefits of exactly helping people exactly. like learn how and, to present synthesize information. Yes. It helps them remember what they, what they learned versus just going to a conference, being overwhelmed and then forgetting it all the minute you got back to the office. And then for the people around the table, you know, it brings new things and novelty into the, into the conversation. Couldn't agree more. That's such a win for everybody around the table and, and lets everyone be an expert. Right. And so instead of exactly. a top down staff meeting, everybody comes in as an expert from whatever their site visit. Yeah. Reveals. So part of that talent development, one of the things I used to do once a month with our staff, with my team was I would have everybody, um, you know, I don't, I don't remember exactly how we had it set up, but basically it was like once a month, um, someone would present an article from the field or some research or something that I've been to a webinar nice. or whatever. And, and then we would have a conversation about it. So, you know, we were always, you know, trying to not just make sure we were getting all the work done, but always, you know, bringing new information and new perspectives into what we were doing.
Perfect. And you're creating a culture that not only where your current team enjoy, but frankly, you're creating a culture that others on the outside would, they want to come work in an environment. Well, like we that. were the learning department. So I figured we needed to do some learning ourselves. <laughs> you got to demonstrate, <laughs> practice what to you practice preach. Practice what right? we yeah. preach. Yeah. So on each episode at the end, I asked each guest, what permission slip um, would they give nonprofit leaders or what would they invite them to consider to avoid being a martyr to the cause? And as they work towards cultivating that, that healthier uh, organizational culture that, you know, will attract and retain staff. So a, a permission senior, slip or a, 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 an invitation. For, for, for the, the senior, senior leader, leader I would say. you know what? I, yeah. I, take a personal mm -hmm. retreat. You know, this is something I have I've advocated later in my career. And again, it speaks to just some of the physical and emotional fatigue that I know nonprofit leaders are feeling. And so there's often kind of a guilt complex of I, I can't take time off. I can't back right. up. You need to, because if you're burning yourself out, it, it creates a toxic kind of environment around you. And so I've talked a lot about, and not just to, I mean, yes, you need a vacation, so don't get me wrong. Right? But what I'm suggesting is a, a more specific kind of design around a personal planning mm. retreat and something I started doing about 10 years ago. And, and you, it, it reminds you how little time we have that we really yep. are unplugged. And so you have to be intentional. You know, you can't take your phone and take all your devices and continue to work. Now, you need to unplug for, you know, a period of time that's reasonable. Um, I find it's re-energizing, it's refreshing, and allows you to get perspective. And so I guess if that is a coupon I would <laughs> offer, that's what... I would definitely. What are suggest. some of the the what are some of the things when you're doing your personal retreat that you're, um, how are you designing it so that it's really helpful to your to yourself? Love, love that question. I mean, just like many of your listeners have sat through probably countless strategic planning sessions, I design it similarly. Personally, first of all, I spend time on the vision statement. What is your personal vision statement? Let's think about five, 10, 20 mm -hmm. years down the road. Um, and so I kind of frame some questions around that. Um, so first we see kind of where we want to go and maybe there's some things that aren't totally clear. That's fine. But like you and I talked about earlier, maybe there are some things like, I know I want to stay in healthcare and I know that I want to stay in this community. Then let's design your kind of vision there. Second phase I do is just some self-assessment exercises. I've got a worksheet I use that I think they're 12 essential skills and experiences for successful nonprofit leaders. And so that in of itself becomes part of the agenda for the personal retreat where I can quietly reflect on, all right, am I, what, what do I need to do to get better in fundraising or in finance management, you know, mm -hmm. board development, mm -hmm. uh, and then put it into an, a plan. Um, I usually look at three time horizons. You know, there's kind of a three year longer term. That would be something like, hey, I'm, I need to get a graduate degree if mm -hmm. I'm going to be competitive for the senior position I hope to get. All right, well, let's put that in motion. And then maybe there's the one year kind of milestones. What am I going to do in 2024? And then I want to leave the retreat, though, with a very clear short term plan. Next 90 That's days. Good, yeah. Right. So that I can feel 
action. But again, these things I know are familiar to you, Carol. We do it as an organization. You know, we do vision, we do assessment, and we put it into a plan. But I find a lot of people haven't personally applied that same strategic framework. And that's what may be a personal retreat. Yeah, and I actually am now doing that. Um, Basically try to do it twice a year, at least once a year. Because for the same thing, right? Nice. Okay, I I do strategic planning with organ at the organizational level. What am I doing for myself? And it, it's very similar exactly. to what you're talking about. I've got you know the longer term vision statement, and then taking a look at that. Okay, so you know a year later, do I still want those things, or do I want to you know do I want to tweak right. that that um, what have I made progress on? And then those shorter you know point of what are the basic parts for me as being as as a you know competencies or skill areas for a consultant and a business owner where am i right now where do i want to be what's the gap where what's going to get me from here to there so yeah i i realized okay i need to i need to actually you know walk my own talk and apply it to myself <laughs> love it love it but and, it takes discipline and you to, make a good point a week it, off you know it, it, and, exactly and put the out of office on exactly. and and you know, not not be caught up in email and all the things um, to to take take that time. Right, could not agree more. And I hope some of our friends listening that are in nonprofit leadership will consider that. Not easy to do, but it pays off. In yeah, so not many easy, ways. but so valuable. Uh, many many right. long term benefits. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Really appreciated you coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Patton, his full bio, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as Sade Carbonell of 100 Ninjas for her production support. Please take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps other people find the podcast, and we certainly appreciate it. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.